I'm Doug Fern, and this is my take on music recording. Dale Becker is a mastering engineer in Los Angeles. Some of his recent work is with artists such as Khalid, Macklemore, Jojo, Keisha, Megan Trainer, Jeremy Zucker, Beast Coast, and Fletcher. He works at Becker Mastering, along with his father, Bernie. I started our conversation by telling Dale about my experience working with mastering experts, starting in the recording Mesozoic era of vinyl. I'm going to start out talking about my experience with mastering, which starts back in 1970, when I had my first studio. And, of course, mastery in those days was for vinyl. There really was no other distribution medium. And the stuff that we had mastered either went to mastering facilities in Philadelphia, which is where we are located, or New York. I didn't go to every mastering session, but I went to a lot of them, especially early on, which was a great education for me. Because not only did I learn about the mastering process, you know, which with lacquer is is a pretty intense process. But I also learned from talking to the mastering guys, what can I do to make your job easier and the final result better? And they were generally very generous with explaining things to me that, that really helped me to make better sounding records. And I actually did some disc cutting in my own studio. Wow. This was in the days when when a client finished the session, they wanted to take home a reference of some sort. There really wasn't any way to give it to them except on a disc because cassettes existed, but boy, did they sound awful. They were mono. And <laughs> they, they took them a long time to even start to sound decent. Mm-hmm. And so it was important to give them something that they could listen to. And so we got actually bought out a studio that was closing and I hadn't intended to buy this disc lathe, but it was part of the package. So I said, I guess I better learn how to do this. Yeah. <laughs> so it was mono back then, and it was a, a really interesting experience for me. I mean, I blew through a lot of lacquer discs and a lot of styli before I figured out everything. But that was really helpful, too, for me because I had a better appreciation of the process involved. Yeah. Absolutely. And then as vinyl stopped being a thing, uh, you know, so so little music was being released that way, my thought was, well, is this the end of mastering? Because what do these guys have to do now? I, I sort of kept that in the back of my mind. I wasn't really doing much that required distribution at that point, at least not at, at a volume level. I was skeptical frankly, mm, of the need yeah. for, for the mastering step. I thought, I can make this sound just like I want it to sound, and it's going to go on a CD, which sounds a lot more like the original than the disc does. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I thought, well, what's, what's the point now, you know? <laughs> but then I came to appreciate what you guys do. because I think your craft evolved into a different thing. And, you know, the outsider's viewpoint of an experienced ear, hearing what the potential was that after you working on this thing for 
days, weeks, months, you know, completely lost sight of, and they were able to to zero in on that and say, we can do this and make it sound better. And that changed my mind completely on that. Does that sound like a, a correct version of the way things evolved? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's kind of funny because what you went through going from uh, vinyl to, well, we'll just skip cassette CD and and wondering, well, what's the point of mastering now? I mean, we're kind of going through that very uh, transition at the moment as we really delve into uh, streaming. So it's kind of funny. We're reliving your experiences in a lot of ways. For people who are good at at, at recording, good at, at songwriting, good at mixing, and they wonder, why would I bring anyone else? You know, because that could be so complicated and go so wrong in so many ways. It It's a very valid question, you know, and you would hope that as you, you know, meet a mastering engineer or try to get something mastered, that it it does go like you had it go. You realize the value in it. But unfortunately, you know, a lot of times that doesn't happen. And you have a lot of, I'm, I would say probably half the people who don't like mastering, uh, their first experience with a mastering studio was probably a poor one. And they just never got the bad taste out of their mouth. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think like the rest of the recording world, you know, it used to be that if you wanted to be a mastering engineer, you had a gigantic investment in a, in a lathe and all the outboard gear and not to mention the expertise, but just a financial outlay. And now people think, you know, they can buy a couple plugins and do the same thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, the the lines are definitely blurred and the buy-in is, is, is far lower um, to quote-unquote master a track. And, and we've very much been all... The, Hopefully, all of us mastering engineers have have been in a season of of kind of rediscovery, reinvention of of creating a service that is valuable. When eight years ago we were seeing these artificial intelligence mastering things come along, and uh, people getting tracks mastered for fifteen bucks, and and it it did very much come at the mastering community. A lot of people thought they were going to lose their jobs and stuff. Eventually, we kind of realized that the the uh, automatic mastering thing was not going to give artists and 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 uh, mixers and producers what they really wanted. I mean, when you when you come and you you work for hours and hours and days and days on a track, and you can hear every nuance of the uh, your your recording. You pick up on every single little detail, and there's no way some heavy-handed algorithm is going to do the job. You need someone who's going to go in there and, and learn and uh, pick up on all those nuances and, and really take take your recording to the next level. Because, sorry to go on a tangent here, but uh, a lot of people mix very loud today, and, and their loud mixes sound very good. So the bar is already very high. You already have mixers who are making releasable mixes. They don't even necessarily need to get mastered, but everyone on the team who is so heavily invested want to make sure 
that the recording is as great as possible. So when a mastering engineer comes to the table, you know, these days it's like you already have this very refined, very uh, what I call locked in uh, mix. And any mastering that you have to, you do has to elevate it on every level. You can't make 50% of it better and 50% of it worse. Uh, you have to uh, see the thing holistically and make sure that the, the kick's staying just as punchy and make sure the space is, is better than when you got it and make sure the vocal sounds better EQ'd than when you got it and make sure... You know, even just working from the two track, you need to not only be looking at the big picture, but all the individual elements and making sure that every piece of the puzzle is perfect because you're going to have the artist listening to the vocal with, you know, with just a crazy amount of perception. You're going to have the producer listening to the beat. You're going to have the mixer listening to transients. You know, you're going to have the label guy making sure it comes through his little Bose or Sono speaker in his office just right. So you have all these, you have to take into account everyone listening at this very fine-tuned level and make sure that everyone's happy and, uh, or at least try, and uh, hopefully in a round or two of notes, bring everyone around to, to loving their master. But um, it, it's definitely an evolved craft today. I guess the follow-up question would be, what do you want to see in the songs that are sent to you? And I know that that's like a really vague question, but, you know, what advice could you give to people that are, you know, inexperienced, just gaining experience, and they're sending something out to master? What What are the mistakes you find in their product, and what do you recommend they do? Well, in, in the songs that I get, I want to see a, a level of what I'll call uh, professional authenticity. So I'd love to have recordings that are, are, are recorded on a professional level, mixed on a professional level, because, I mean, that just really uh, helps the technical side of things. But at the same time, I want the recordings that come to be authentic and not mixed in a way to be something that they're not or not performed in a way to be something that they're not. I find the greatest recordings that I've ever put my hands are uh, on are just what they are. It's like the artist being authentic, the mixer respond, the produ producer producing a track in a way that elevates what the artist is doing, the mixer elevating what the producer and the artist has done in in everyone just responding with their highest level of professionalism and their highest level of just wanting the song to be as great as it can be and just be what it is not s starting the whole process with trying to make something sound like something else or you know write a song that sounds exactly like you know, when I first got started, it was Maroon 5, and everyone wanted to sound like Maroon 5, even if they were, I had people, you know, making, like, hip-hop music, and they were referencing Maroon 5, and it's kind of like pulling in influences that really don't benefit the music, just for the sake of having something that will fit in the marketplace. You know, you can tell when 
uh, you put on a song and it's just fully itself. Production, song, performance, mix. It's just what it was always meant to be. And it wasn't railroaded in the process. Um, it wasn't railroaded or made something else just to be something that could, I don't know, stream well or sound like something else or sit in a playlist. You know, I just find that when people when people come together and there's a chemistry between them and people are just allowed to be themselves to the greatest degree and, and there's a, a level of kind of partnership between the different aspects of the team, man, you can just get some of the most incredible, heartfelt music. And that's always the best stuff to master because everything flows in to the next thing in a in a natural way. And the whole process isn't some tenuous, like difficult. I mean, I'm not saying that things that are difficult aren't the right. It can't be right because everything's difficult in a sense. But when things flow from from stage to stage and you know people come alongside a project and really shape it in in the right way it just makes mastering all the easier because number 1 a song that comes in with that sort of professional authenticity it it's easy to master because it comes in sounding almost finished anyway <laughs> i'm just kind of preparing it for the different it wouldn't be mediums as much today but the different streaming outlets making sure it it translates everything that people poured into it 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 translates on spotify or translates on on title and if someone so happens to buy a cd that it translates well on cd so my job is actually very minimal at that point if it's a single it gets a little bit more complicated when i'm taking 10 really great songs and trying to make them work together on an album. Uh, but generally, when you're working on a single like that, it it's just as easy as pie. You know, you just sit and you listen for an hour and a half and you try to pick up and respond to respond to the nuance and milk every little bit, you know, pick up on what the mixer did, you know, a little little delay throw and, and you know, maybe maybe bring it out or just tweak the vocal just a touch to make it translate better on more than just studio speakers. I want it to translate, you know, on small speakers, big speakers, headphones. So, I mean, that is how I know that's a very idealized version, but when people are themselves, it just, that's the, the best kind of um, audio to master in my opinion. Well, yeah, that's the best kind of of music to record too, because yes, in sir. my in my experience, you know, when a song comes together, people come in, they're prepared. The song is great, and everybody's into the project, and it just all fits into place. It's like, wow, I'd like to do this every day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I don't exactly. want to fight with it, you know. Yeah, and and that's how it feels as a mastering engineer, you're not fighting with anything when the mix and the song is right. You are, you are trying to do everything to not fight against anything. Because if you're fighting against a great mix, then you're definitely in the wrong headspace. Because a great recording as a mastering engineer, any recording, 
needs to be promote uh, needs to be approached with with a high level of hu- humility, uh, and that's one area in which we mastering engineers have gotten it wrong for so long because we were these, you know, not we as as in me, but you know, mastering engineers of of yesteryear had these extremely high level. Uh, you know, everyone looked up to them, and they it was mysterious and a black art and all this stuff, but with that comes this kind of ego and this kind of disconnection with how great it is to make an authentic song. So when something comes up that, that isn't exactly as the master engineer wanted, they, they could come up with that. They could approach it with this kind of like fighting attitude, like, Oh, why does this sound like this? Or why is this, you know, why does this pan this way? Or why is this so loud? Why is this so soft? And uh, early on watching my dad work with people and, other great engineers, I realized that a lot of the great engineers always approach things with humility and understanding, trying to hear the song and not be like, oh, I'm going to fix this, but like maybe be more like, listen to something. Oh, that's interesting. That's kind of loud, you know, uh, or this is kind of soft or, but I wonder what part of the process made it this way. Was it an A&R wanting the vocal to be 3 dB too loud? Was it uh, a mixer who was kind of working in a in, in not as good of an environment? Or did it take three years to mix this song and people just gave up? I don't know, but it's still a great thing. And you approach it with this kind of level of understanding. And instead of fighting with something, you kind of cradle it and you try to gently, uh, uh, gently elevate the track and kind of come alongside instead of being a mastering engineer in some room that no one ever talks to because he's so famous, you know, it, you become part of the team and you come alongside the team in the recording and your vision is is the team's vision. You are trying to take what the other engineers, producer, artists were trying to do, did their very best to do in the production and the mix and take it to its its logical conclusion. You know, People might have been able to take it 95% of the way or 90% of the way that that they wanted to take it, and then they come to a mastering engineer, and if the mastering engineer is humble and is hardworking and can have synergy with the with the, the vision of, of the team, you can really do some fantastic work with people. You know, and it can be a beautiful thing. The, the, the song can be a beautiful thing. And even more more important than the song, in my experience, is the the beautiful thing that happens in a in in the relationship, when when people know that you're for them, that you're for their music, and they catch that, and they they know that you're not just trying to to get billable hours and and another job, but that you actually care about them and their music. That's the beautiful thing to me. Many engineers that I talk to that are, you know, maybe not totally famous, but people really good at what they Mm -hmm. do, they all have that attitude towards it. You know, they all have the attitude that no matter what the project is, it's the most important thing in the world. And, and, you know, the way I always put it personally is you have a performer, songwriter, performer, and you have a listener, and your job is to – well, do as little harm to it as possible for one thing in that relationship between the performer and the listener, but also help them to achieve what their what their potential is in the song. Mm, yeah, yeah, because a lot of people need a 
especially the artist-producer relationship, but but in the same way the mixer-mastering engineer relationship, a lot of times, you know, artists, things are never perfect like they would want them to be going into a session. And and the, the producer becomes the friend of the, the, of the artist to call out the best in them and to help them uh, focus on the right things to achieve the greatest result. And, and a lot of times it's the same thing with mastering engineer mixer. Mixers get drugged through the mud by the team uh, with notes and, and they, they are delivering to the mastering engineer a mix that isn't really even theirs anymore uh, because it's like version 15 and uh, their vision was vision uh, version one. And uh, the mastering engineer, if there's a relationship, a friendship there, can, can be the guy to be like, no, 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 it, let me help you see this differently. Like, this is great. All the things that, that a, a mixing engineer is thinking of and all the kind of like trauma that happens during the mixing process, the mastering engineer is unaware of that and can just look at things uh, anew and afresh and and help uh, put a new perspective a, a new perspective and give the mixer the confidence that he needs to continue to get this project over the line you know so there's there is those kind of relational uh, aspects that are are very important when I think back when I started back in the multi-track tape days a mix was a performance because everything was done in real time and there were, could be a lot of movement in the mix in, in some cases. And it often took a team to do a mix. So we didn't do many remixes. In fact, that seemed to be pretty rare in my experience in the, in the 70s. But now, when we can recall the mix, set it all up, and just start over again from wherever we last let off, it, it, it creates a different kind of dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I also see your point about as the mastering guy who doesn't have all that baggage of the, of the recording process and can listen to this thing, you know, with completely fresh ears and you don't have any of those emotional connections with the process that happened before. Yep. Yep. Uh, just to that point, uh, you know, most of the, most of my relationships with mixing engineers, my relationship is with them and I coordinate and I go through revisions with them and I work with them on the project and the A&R sort of is waiting for the thing to be finished. And he, uh, he or she, delivers it to the artist for review or whatnot. But in a lot of cases, I'm finding more and more that, that the A&R stands in between me and the mixing and the production team. And I used to not like that at all. And, and I know mixers don't like that at all. And I, I completely understand why. But in some cases, the team has gone through so much to get the mix done that the a&R person doesn't want there to be a direct connection between the teams and the mastering engineer. And I'm starting to understand that more because the A&R wants the fresh perspective. It's difficult because my heart goes out to the, the mixing engineer or whoever wants to be involved in the process. But, but once in a while, 
it turns out to be the smart choice because people are so ingrained in the project process and have so many kind of, I call them golden calves, you know, kind of like <laughs> things they things they worship, like, oh, that snare sound or that, that thing, we gotta, we can't lose that. And when, when, in, when in fact, like the, the side stick is like maybe the 15th most important thing. Sometimes when the ANR steps in and, and lets a mastering engineer do their thing and it, it's, it's label approved, it is the right call because it doesn't take into account all these little minutiae that aren't truly that important for the final. Uh, and I know I'm going to get a lot of heat for that <laughs> from some people for saying that. But And, and I, I always, just for the record, I always prefer to work with people and I'm willing to dig in and, and make it work. But, um, you know, sometimes ARs tap into that un... <laughs> that unaffected perspective and it, it turns out to be the win honestly it's it's a difficult thing to say but it's it's true <laughs> dale do you do any tracking or mixing yourself these days i i do and a, and a lot of the reason that i do that and my dad does that is because we like to stay connected with how hard it is to make an a, a record so the less and less you record and mix and produce the less as a mastering engineer the less and less you're connected with what people are bringing into you to work on and i'll tell you mastering my own mix or mastering my own i I don't do it for as a generally the stuff that i'm mixing is for myself or for for a friend Uh, i don't do it as like a, a service um billable service but when I'm working on my own mix and and I'm sitting there just hating on my own ass, you know, just oh gosh, you know, just wishing I was better <laughs> or or wishing I had not distorted that vocal recording or wishing that I had used a different guitar, you know, cuz now it's just too boomy or whatever and and trying to complete the process yourself, all these things really pour into just an experience pool for me as a mastering engineer to see things in a holistic light. Because uh, I'm not just peering into, as the mastering engineer with all that experience, I'm not just peering into the mix. I'm viewing things from a from a beginning to end songwriting to, to mixed final process. And I'm able to see where things might have gone wrong intuit the correct thing to do in a in a instance and maybe adjust it a little bit differently than a mastering engineer quote unquote would because I'm not trying to fix something in the mix I'm trying to maybe maybe instead of cutting a problem frequency I'll boost a good frequency or just these little changes in in perspective um, just really help me to solve problems in a creative way and uh, that's always poured into how I hear music. And I think it's what a lot of people resonate with me about is because as opposed to like listening to sound, I'm trying to hear music. And those two things, in my opinion, are worlds apart. Yeah, well, you you grew up with this, I guess, with this approach to things because of your dad. 
So yep. mm-hmm. when, when you were, did you develop an interest in this early in, you know, seeing what your dad did? Or is it something that, that came about later? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because I was into music as soon as I was like 12. I was super into, I mean, I grew up just loving all kinds of music. Like I, I grew up on like Seals and Crofts and uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, uh, just that era of music and just developed like a deep, deep love. I and, and it's funny, that stuff and like Neil Diamond, because my dad worked for him forever. I'm a huge Neil Diamond fan, know all of his stuff, as well as my mom's a huge like opera fan so or, or musical theater fan. So I grew up with all this constant music in my life. And around 12, I started to really love uh, hip hop, rap, I remember my first CD was uh, the Friday soundtrack with Dr. Dre. And then I really started to get into alternative music. I loved, you know, Nirvana and Bush and all these bands. And so I picked up a guitar, um, mainly to my friends played guitar. I wanted to play guitar. And then I started playing at church and stuff. And probably since I was a baby, all the way up until I was in in college was kind of surrounded by music. And when I got to college, I realized because of a uh, influence from my high school choir teacher that I really wanted to do music professionally. I didn't know I wanted to be an engineer per se, but I just loved music and getting my butt kicked in in a really serious high school choir made me just want to go to music school. So I ended up at Azusa Pacific University, and that's where things really got serious for me in terms of like production, recording, uh, songwriting, and and engineering. And, you know, my dad had a studio. I didn't know how to do anything. All I knew how to do was use logic, but I did have access to be able to go in and just start figuring things out. And so through college, I was just constantly trying to learn, trying to work with my, my, my dad would always pay the engineers to come and record a song of mine or something. And I would learn a little bit at a time. So by the time I was out of college, it just so happened that my dad's main engineer at his studio had to split and and it was like had to split like like tomorrow had to split. And I was just fresh out of college and by that point I knew how to run a session, knew how to use pro tools, knew how to use the we had uh, two MCI tape machines at the time and a 112 input Rembrandt Amec console and like I kind of knew enough to be dangerous and I remember on my birthday it was like my probably my 22nd birthday or something I had my first like legitimate session uh with a vocalist and the rest it's just the rest is kind of history <laughs> hmm. do you still cut lacquer at, at, at Becker Mastering you know, we've never been in the lacquer business, and I've I've looked into it a couple times because uh, I've been able to have the pleasure of sitting in with Kevin Gray uh, or Ian over at Capitol and just watch. So, it's such a an amazing thing. I just love it. I'm such a nerd for that stuff. But I, I really was impacted by this idea. There's a book called The One Thing, and uh, it, it just talks about how people who focus on one thing just are way more apt to do great in that one thing. And 
not to say that you can't be a great mastering engineer and a great cutter, because I'm sure I know they exist out there. But I knew for me, as mastering was shifting and and becoming something different in the digital age, uh, I knew I couldn't. Uh, it's the same reason why I quit producing. I knew I needed to give digital mastering uh, or analog and digital mastering mastering for digital platforms my 100 freaking percent because that's that's the buy-in for me to be great i needed to 100 percent focus on just making music that goes out into the world digitally and um the for for me i don't want to cut my own lacquer i want to go someone who has that same 100 percent one thing one thing this is what i do i cut lacquer mastering engineer i want to go to that guy because that guy's going to cut a good lacquer, because that's all he does. When you go down to Kevin Gray, 98% of his work is cutting lacquers. When you go to Ian, 98% of his work is cutting lacquers. They do it day in, day out. They love it, and they're not fitting in the lacquer between mastering Metallica or something. Like <laughs> That's just what they do. I love people who, who are of that same focus. In, in a way, it takes kind of some humility and some boundaries in your life to like just decide to do one thing because these days everyone wants to do everything yeah that's a long answer for I don't do vinyl but that's why I don't that's why I don't do vinyl I may one day for fun but it's definitely not going to be my uh I think I'm going to be doing this until whatever happens (laughs) well yeah that's interesting and you know one of the things and this this doesn't just apply to lacquer mastering, but just being in a room with machinery that's moving is a different experience than the digital world we live in now, where there's nothing moving except maybe some stuff on a screen. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and a, a a disc lathe is a big, living, breathing machine. It makes oh, a yeah. lot of noise, and it's complicated, and it's super critical, and you know, as a as somebody that's always been fascinated with technology, I was just entranced by it. Yeah, I just love to watch people work on it because it's it's a totally different thing. And I realized very early on that if you aren't a tech, if you don't know how to fix electronic equipment uh, like me, I can't fix a thing really. I can fix computers, but not not like anything electronic. You do not want to be a lacquer mastering engineer because you're not going to be able to work half the time because so many mechanical parts and a lot of these lathes are 60 years old, you know, are 50, 60 years old. So yeah, no, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but I res- I respect uh, people who are great at it, you know? Yeah, me too. And uh, it's true. It's a huge maintenance problem. And there's yeah. just so many variables. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about yeah. lacquer uh-huh. mastering, but just to give people a sense of it, there's a million uncontrollable variables you have to be ready to adapt to in the process, in the machinery, in the in the lacquer medium, in the stylus, and it's different every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I wanted to ask you about the mastering process for different outlets. Mm-hmm. You know, this was something that's it's kind of a new concept to me. And 
you know, how many different formats are you asked to optimize stuff for, and what are some of the differences between them? Well, that's a, a changing uh, answer, like, in, in this very moment, uh, as we shift from the majority of music being uh, streamed in stereo to the majority of music, it, it's beginning to shift that, that most streaming outlets are going to be uh, streaming uh, one of many immersive formats. So it's getting more complicated right now. Generally speaking, today, as of today, my main deliverable is a 24-bit wave file. And uh, I need, people expect that 24-bit wave file to equally perform well on CD, uh, which it would, of course, get dithered down to 16, or uh, Spotify, or Tidal, or, you know, whatever, or Apple iTunes Store. Actually, the iTunes have something called ADM, Apple Digital Masters. That's a little bit different. But generally speaking, they just want one wave file. They don't want an Apple Digital Master. They don't want a, a wave file for Spotify. They don't want something for Tidal. I had a lawyer talk me through the, the reasoning why they can't have all these different masters in the different stores and stuff, but it, it's kind of complicated. But anyway, most people just want the one master, and it needs to do as, as well as it can in all the different uh, stores, all the different outlets. The problem is, right now, there's no agreement from, from Spotify to Tidal to, to Apple Music what sort of playback standard there is uh, in terms of there's uh, most stores use this, use volume normalization which turns down all masters uh, to a particular LUFS at the moment you know Spotify's at like minus 14 LUFS and it makes it even more difficult because it's just a this LUFS number is given for the whole song so it's kind of an integrated average of of what the song as a whole is averaged at, which is difficult because you could have some very loud portions, very soft portions, but it, it just gives one average. Each store is different. So the, the ongoing conversation between me and artists is, well, how do I get loud on Spotify? But how can I also have something that good, sounds good on, on Tidal when it's not uh, volume normalized. It's it's a very complicated scenario out there, but the one thing that the conversation is is going in the right direction, in my opinion, is is that people don't feel the need to distort their masters and distort their mixes just to make it loud, because everything gets turned down to that roughly minus fourteen level. So if you distort and you lose all your dynamics for the sake of loudness, it's gonna you're you're gonna sound flat as a pancake. You're gonna have no nothing to to grab people's attention. So people are willing to maybe mix a little softer with a little bit more bottom, uh, with a little bit more impact, and, and that's what grabs through, you know, kind of grabs listeners on you know New Music Friday on Spotify or something. That's a very long technical discussion that's probably more fit for like a white paper, but the bottom line is right now it's just a, like I said, that 24-bit WAV file or maybe a 16-bit WAV file or maybe, a, maybe the Apple Digital Master. Uh, what we're walking into now on top of all that 
volume normalization complexity is we're walking into a time when every single outlet is going to be streaming Dolby uh, Atmos or uh, you know possibly even other formats. Uh, I know Sony uh, has their immersive format that they're working on uh, that is on their website now that everyone should check out. So back in the day when people started doing 5.1 masters and quad masters is that you needed a 5.1 system or a quad system to play it back. You know, and people gave up on on listening to music and surround because number one, no one wants to sit in the middle of five speakers and listen to music most of the time. You know, that could be fun once in a while, but uh, people aren't going to want to sit in, in, in the in the perfect place. They want to be able to walk throughout their house. They want to throw on a pair of headphones. And the, the beautiful thing about these uh, immersive formats, Atmos, all these things, is that these formats not only work immersively in, in a 7.1.4 system or in a, a full Atmos theater, but they also come down and get encoded binaurally for the headphone. So, or for headphones. So that allows one format to handle wherever you are, including like uh, Amazon came out with a, a, their little dot echo. I, even though it's a single source, you know, a single little speaker, it uses whatever magic uh, voodoo to, to play back these Atmos mixes and fill your room in a different way than a, a, a standard stereo streaming master would be. And that same Atmos master, you put in a pair of earbuds and it uses, like I said, binaural encoding to take all the data from this massive 128 channel or object, 128 object mix, and, and it's literally performing that same mix in your earbuds and you're hearing things because of that binaural encoding, you are hearing what was mixed behind you. You are hearing what was mixed above you. You're hearing what what is is spinning around you. Hopefully, you know, people don't have too much spinning around stuff. Like, it's, it's a beautiful format, and people have finally figured out a way. I mean, it's been a long time coming, 20 years, people trying to get people to listen to music and surround, and finally, we have these formats coming up that, that are truly going to allow people to to benefit from immersive audio anywhere they are yeah you've educated me on that because i wasn't aware that that the compatibility was that good well that that you know the compatibility is 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 very well thought through uh, systematically you know what i mean like from from a technical point of view I think the true people who are going to be able to perform and do the greatest work in the next 10 years are people who make the most of this format and mix in a way that you can both have a great sounding mix in the atmosphere, but that it also sounds great in the mix down in the headphones in, in a pair of earbuds. And I really think that that has everything to do with the mixer because if the mixer makes a great atmos mix and pays no attention to what the binaural render is going to sound like you're not going to have a good binaural render it's going to sound super phasey it's going to sound all sorts of weird but if you have someone uh, new minds who who really pour themselves into these formats and make the most of them there should be uh, compatibility across all platforms if 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 the work is done right 
In your studio, are you set up to listen to it in the full Atmos uh, setup? It, actually, we're in the process of a. We're in the process right now. Probably by, by the time that you're airing this podcast, we're going to be in full Atmos. Currently, we're we we have you know surround and uh, a couple of immersive things that I actually can't um, under NDA to discuss, but. The beautiful thing is that, uh, you know, pretty soon we're going to be in full Atmos, and we actually get quite a lot of requests already from labels for Atmos Masters. You know, you you got into the loudness uh, issue a bit, which was one of my topics that I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about. Yeah. And the the loudness war started when the limiter was invented in 1930, and We've had to deal with that ever since. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there is evolving a standard for that. I know that my goal for the last couple of years has been a loudness level of minus 16, which mm -hmm. I, I, I figured is, is, is a pretty reasonable compromise. But mm -hmm. what happens in the mastering stage if you get something in that's already at minus... 10 or minus 8 loudness units. What, what can you do with that? Well, I've even gotten mixes in that were minus 3 loudness units. Oh, <laughs> me and my me and my uh, uh, friends like Nathan Dantzler or something, these other mastering engineers that I know, we, we like screenshot, screenshot LUFS figures to just to laugh how loud some mixes are. There's still plenty to do. Uh, the hope is that no matter how loud a mix is, it, that it's not apparently distorted. I mean, you have mixing engineers who are still mixing really loud that still mix really well. Uh, they've kind of like made the most of mixing loud, and th their mixes sound really great. Uh, really, what I try to do uh, on a single, for instance, when a single comes in and it's really loud, uh, my one thing that I've always really tried to do is to not make it louder, but make it better. And that's a very fine line. So I have a very kind of complex monitoring setup that allows me to really monitor, I'm saying really a lot, uh, that allows me to monitor where the mix is at or the loud version of the mix, where my master's at, and I have some very fine-tuned stepped monitoring controls to make sure that I don't think that I'm just making something better just because it's louder. Because that doesn't fly anymore. That might have flied in like 1994. People are all impressed with loudness, but no one's impressed with <laughs> those sorts of things anymore. So I've had to really learn to beat the L2 or the loud version of the mix without being louder. A lot of times people do want it louder and then I can make it make it you, you know, I can make it as loud as they want it, but generally what I'm focusing on is with music that's mixed that loud, I am not looking for analog saturation. I'm not looking for, I, I'm looking to, to emphasize saturation as little as possible. I'm looking to go in and fine tune EQ and even pull distortion out with, with very fine, I use the M-A-A-T, I don't know if it's called Matt, but they make a they make three very amazing digital uh, VSTs of what used to be the Algorithmics plugins, and I'll use some very fine, you know, Q 
EQ to maybe pull out points that are mostly distortion. You know, a lot of times you'll find like with something that's very loud, if you duck 4K by a dB, uh, 20% of the distortion goes away. And then you, you duck, oh, a little bit of 680 where there's like a woof and it's it's built up and oh, another 20% of the distortion goes away. So I'm kind of focusing on bringing the right stuff forward and pushing the wrong stuff back. And then a lot of times people will be like, how'd you get rid of that distortion? Or how'd you get it to sound so big? And really it's just a very fine-tuned uh, set of EQs. And limiting also has plays a huge part in that when something's very loud i have to be able to eq which takes gain to do and then that eq changes causes additional uh, gain that has to be limited so not only am i trying to keep it the same volume at least the same volume as the loud mix but the eq i'm doing literally is making that job harder so i have to pick good limiting and so i use that final limiting stage after the eq to to shape transients and to give the right feel for the ambience and the transients and the, and the, the whole picture so it's kind of a two-stage process of of digital limiting and digital limiting and uh fine digital eq okay well is there anything that we didn't talk about that you think is important for people to know? Well, I know this isn't the uh, the Doug Fern, how great is your gear story hour, but I would like the podcast that I'm a part of to at least say how grateful we are for your innovation. And because one of the, one of my, uh, it's not a secret weapon because I tell everyone about it, but my VT5, VT7 combo is when I'm doing an analog master, everything goes through that stuff. And this, so I don't know if you're going to put this in your thing because I don't know if you like to toot your own horn, but but I just want you to know how your your equipment is the first EQ compressor combo that I've kept this long because it just works on everything and I've always had pieces of gear that work on 60% of stuff or 50% of stuff or 10% of stuff. But somehow, your gear just makes everything sound better. <laughs> so it's like, it. I just want to say on the record that I love your gear and I love the, I, I feel in, in a very... Uh, sympathetic way that you are you represent to me in the gear world someone who has become really really great at the one thing at gear making gear that works and that sounds great and that uh is is well manufactured and that looks amazing um so thank you well thank you for all those kind words and you know to to some extent I think I'm as amazed as anybody how good that stuff sounds. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yeah. all all the gear that I designed was was because it was something that I needed, that I wanted, that filled a need that I couldn't get with anything else that I came across. Because mm -hmm. I knew exactly what I wanted it to do, mm -hmm. but you know, making it do that is um, it's kind of a mystery. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, because 
I, I've used the analogy before, but I think it's it's like somebody who sits down and just has this idea for a song, and in 20 minutes has this unbelievably good song written, and they mm-hmm. they sit there and they say, "Where did that come from?" You know, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, I didn't design that stuff in 20 minutes, but right, I, it's the same sort of thing. It's when I finally got it hooked up and working and I was happy with the way it sounded, I said, this is beyond what I thought I was doing and I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't, you certainly didn't cut any corners and oftentimes I, I don't feel like you and this, I please don't take this wrong. I don't feel like you made this equipment with the economics in mind. You, wanted to make something great and it's like when i was just watching the space shuttle launch there or what was supposed to be the space shuttle launch with elon musk and i'm like that guy you could say whatever you want about that guy but that guy made and his team made a rocket and it's not about it it, making a rocket and sending people into space it can't be about how much money it costs it just has to be that the cost just needs to be what it needs to be and i feel like you made something that didn't cut any corners just for the sake of making something cheap. And um, and that's the sort of thing that a guy like me wants to use. I want to use something that that is, is spared no expense. I mean, obviously, there's a level where people are just doing dumb things just to, you know, sell a pair of $100,000 speaker cables. But that's not this either. You've just used the highest quality components and and designed it in a way that just is 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 beautiful it's it's i would call it a work of art i'm not tooting your horn i'm just saying it you've done something really special with those units and it just shows to me and to everyone who uses them well it's true that i didn't design it to a price and yeah i probably violated all the rules of uh business in (laughs) in setting this up because I didn't do any market research. I didn't have a price point in mind. Mm-hmm. You know, I just wanted good gear that I wanted to use. And it was the, yeah. th- the thing that I would use in preference to anything else. And, yeah. and my feeling was if there's other people out there that hear the way I do and they want to buy it, that, that's great. If mm-hmm. they're happy with something, you know, something else that works for them, that's fine too. I, I use the best parts because I'm I'm just into quality stuff, you know. Yeah. I just don't like stuff that breaks or is planned obsolescence. You know, how much stuff do we buy that you know it's two years and it's trash? Yep. And so much. Yeah, and I design my stuff, you know, to have a minimum fifty year life, which sounds like a lot in this day and age. <laughs> but but yeah. look at look at all the great vintage gear that's well over fifty years now and still going strong. I mean yep. it mm-hmm. takes some maintenance, but it was built well to begin with and you could maintain it and you could keep it going. It's it's a it's something that you did, it's like passionate gear building to fuel your passion for recording so it's like passion squared (laughs) you know because it's like you're trying to fix your own issue and you're not gonna skimp on your own fixing something for yourself you know other other gear manufacturing they're they're maybe less connected with the with the end user 
Um, so they're trying to fix someone else's issue, which never gets the same, the same passion and focus that someone fixing their own issue is going to give it because you're going to be using it at the end of the day. So I think that that's a big, uh, a big thing. You're not just making a product. You're making your own tools, so to speak. Well, yeah, I have to say that's true. And I've just been really gratified that there's enough people out there that like this stuff, despite the price, because it's awful expensive. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I prefer it if if we could build that stuff for a lot less money, but it just can't be done without making compromises. Yeah. And I'm just not into compromising, no. you know, at least when it comes to audio. Well, and if people if people don't compromise, I mean, as, as like as me being a young engineer at one point, I know my daddy had a studio or whatever, but there was a time when I didn't have any good gear because he didn't want me breaking any of any of his good gear. And I I feel like any young engineer who is as passionate as you are, who doesn't make compromises in their work and does the best with what they can, they're gonna just absolutely rise to a level as a professional where the economic it makes economic sense that they can purchase your gear i think it it's a match for anyone who who has that sort of no compromise mentality they will find it you know well and i have to say that when this podcast is done and edited it will run through a vt5 and a vt7 before <laughs> before it's ready to be posted and it's you know, low bit rate MP3 version that is a podcast, but, you know, we recorded at pretty high resolution so that we have a lot to work with and make it sound as good as it can. Yeah. And then in, in the year 13,042, when they have these uh, 2496 recordings, they can uh, really appreciate the fidelity <laughs> down the road. Someday, right. someday someone will appreciate the, fide- the, the, the full res version of this. But yeah, well, but that's thank what, you, Doug. Yeah, that's what I figured. You know, might as well do it in, you know, a reasonably high resolution format. I mean, I guess this is probably pretty industry standard, 2496. Mm-hmm. But, you know, why not? It's, it's why not, not like we're using up reels of tape here. <laughs> right, right. Yep. So there's no no excuse for not using the highest resolution that that makes sense for the project. Exactly, exactly. My thoughts, indeed. Well, Dale, thank thank you so much for doing this. There's a lot of great information here, and I think people will really appreciate your perspective. And hopefully, they'll learn some tricks that will make not only your job easier and more satisfying, but give them a better final product. So, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. It was a a great hour spent. I appreciate it. I've been talking with mastering engineer Dale Becker of Becker Mastering in Los Angeles. As always, send me your comments, questions, or suggestions. The email link is available at dougfern.com. This is my take on music recording. I'm Doug Fern. See you next time.